You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware, and we are now in the thick of 2020. Votes have taken place. Uh, they may not have all been counted, but the votes have have taken place in uh, in the nominating process in the primary. Uh, we had an incredibly busy week this week. Votes on removal in the Senate. We had Iowa to kick off the week. We had town halls uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, and then of course we have the debate. In New Hampshire tonight. And so there's a lot to cover. We have an incredible guest to help us sift through all of this, and that is Tim Alberta. Uh, Tim Alberta is one of my favorite journalists. It does really incredible long-form pieces for Politico. He's the ch- chief political correspondent for Politico, and he wrote a book American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump that debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Tim is someone who I think has keen insight on uh, the state of our politics right now. Uh, He's written some important pieces just in the last couple of weeks that we're going to discuss. I know you'll enjoy that conversation. Before we get to Tim, I I just want to cover a few topics. I just want to start with impeachment. I wrote a piece for our Substack account that went up this morning. You can check it out at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com. This post is open to the public. Other posts are for subscribers, and we recently dropped the uh, the price of subscription to make it more uh, accessible for folks. Uh, if you were a subscriber last week, then you received a preview of Iowa that turned out to be pretty on point. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in this episode as well. But where I want to start is with impeachment. And specifically, just w- was deeply inspired by Senator Mitt Romney. Deep, deeply inspired. Not by his the mere fact of his vote, but the way he approached it, the humility and reservation, yet core, solid core of his eight or nine minute remarks on the Senate floor explaining his vote, the logical process that he laid out for how he came to his decision. I don't share Mitt Romney's faith. It was still deeply moving for for someone to deeply call on the teachings of their faith in a way that had public bearing and in a way that the public could understand without sort of watering it down. There were allusions in his speech that, that were really, you know, deeply grounded in uh, his faith. He, he also laid out a sort of political process and political reasoning and, and um, judgment as well, but for a vote like this, and for what I think was sincerely a, a moral question for him, I, I think it was it was it was right to call on uh, his faith in the way that in the way that he did. It was deeply inspiring. I, I can't say enough about the example that I think Mitt Romney gave to his fellow 
elected officials, but hopefully to all of us. Hopefully, the fact that Mitt Romney was willing to do something that would not change an outcome, that would bring him a lot of pain and sacrifice for for no discernible concrete advantage, no discernible concrete outcome, no action. Donald Trump's still in office. Mitt Romney said, obviously, he's still going to be in office. This is about me being responsible with the responsibility I've been given. I'm not responsible for my other colleagues. The other important thing he did was uh, he said that his conscience binds him, but he was really careful not to suggest that his conscience ought to bind everybody else. He was real careful not to use sort of his moral judgment as a weapon against others. I mean, there's just so it was um, it was a really amazing speech that I think as as Christians and as people who think about the ethics of politics, we should be looking at it. Uh, and I hope it's the kind of document that college classes include in their uh, syllabi for decades. There's more I could say ab- about that, but I'll 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 leave it there. There there has been this argument that uh, that we've heard from some Republican senders that to vote for removal might be the right thing to do on substance, but it would further sort of throw our country into divisive polarization, and and so it wasn't worth it. And uh, in my Substack post, I. I talk about why that's why that's such a a, a bad uh, line of reasoning to to go down. So I won't uh, recount that here. If you want to read more on that, go to reclaiminghope.substack.com. Obviously, this is going to bear on 2020. It's going to bear on 2020 because we've been through this process. And as David Brooks has written about in the New York Times, Nate over at the New York Times. Donald Trump's approval ratings are higher than they've been in a very long time, a, a very long time. I've, I've seen 49% approval ratings. Uh, th- that's what I verified just before I started recording. I, I saw something about 51% approval ratings, which, you know, is, is a key marker. Uh, the, the, the economy continues to do well. I thought, and we should probably talk about President Trump's State of the Union Hopefully it was a wake-up call for Democrats. Hopefully Democrats were able to watch that State of the Union and hear it like many people in the country were hearing it, as opposed to every time the president opened his mouth thinking about all the articles you've read and all the counterpoints and uh, all, all of the various sort of partisan pushback you know, lines that you might have that that's all valid. All of that's going to, you know, that, that kind of thing is valid. That's all going to play out. Uh, but we need to first recognize that uh, the president Trump is going to be making a pitch too. And if we don't understand the appeal of that, uh, Democrats are not going to be able to confront it uh, appropriately. I, I thought it was a very compelling speech. I, I thought it was, the, the 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 litany on the front end of the speech of uh, various economic metrics, uh, 
if President Trump had the discipline to just repeat those over and over again and not say anything else, he'd probably win. I will say I'm still of the mind that I think it's less likely that Trump wins or more likely that Trump loses than that he wins at this point. But but that could change. And the outcome of the Democratic primary is going to be a key piece of that. And so before we get to Tim Alberta, and we're going to be talking about all of this with Tim, uh, I did just want to talk about Iowa and what we have coming up in New Hampshire a bit. With Iowa, as I wrote for Substack, I had a concern going in that Joe Biden's support in Iowa was going to collapse out from from under him, and and, and that's that's what we saw. Uh, and the real question is going to be whether that is an Iowa thing, which would not be unprecedented. Iowa often has surprises and leading sort of national candidates like Hillary Clinton, their support. Uh, evaporating or diminishing significantly leading up to the caucus. And then they rebound in New Hampshire. Um, there's a specific history with New Hampshire there, but also, in, you, know, you know, it's possible in some of the later states. But we did see Joe Biden's support collapse from under him. Uh, the, the, the counts are, are still not 100% final, but we basically have Biden at 13% of delegates, which is you know, not great. I think it's very fortunate for his campaign that they ended up ahead of Klobuchar. I think a fifth place finish would have been even more difficult to take on. And then we had Elizabeth Warren at about 18% of delegates and Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders neck and neck. As we've tracked, Pete Buttigieg had a very difficult uh, December and January. We really saw a support plummet uh, but as I wrote in the subject, there were signs that he was gaining back momentum at just the right time. He was closing with a very hard, uh, with a very uh, consistent message around his ability to bring in Republicans, which I don't think is proved at all. But but that was the message he was closing on, and it seemed to have have an effect in the state. You know, I think I think Buttigieg is a, a candidate who. There are things to be excited about, but he doesn't feel like a risk. So if you want to be able to say that, you know, I voted for one of the youngest presidential candidates ever, or I voted for the first LGBT uh, candidate ever, that's something that you could sort of have as a badge. That's something that you could sort of say in your social circles, which I I don't mean to be dismissive. I'm not saying that's all that's going on here, uh, but... I do think there's an element of this where Pete is sort of uh, exciting enough and there are some characteristics that that sort of are invigorating enough while also making uh, people feel, especially college-educated edu- whites, feel like comfortable uh, supporting him. Uh, we'll see if that holds up. New Hampshire could be another good state for Pete and with the way things are lined up. Could be a kind of situation where he's able to really take the wind out of Biden's sales before Biden gets to states where uh, many think he, he's better positioned to, to run well. Bernie, you know, and again, the count isn't final. Him and Buttigieg are going to be within really a handful of delegates together. 
You had a strong showing in Iowa, as people expected. It's going to be uh, interesting in the debate tonight to see how much pressure is put on Bernie. So just a few thoughts on, uh, on the race moving forward. The first, I'd be very surprised if the order of the top five in New Hampshire matched the order of the Iowa results. I, I think we'll see a significant shakeup, particularly if you consider Buttigieg winning Iowa. I think New Hampshire comes close to a make or break state for Elizabeth Warren. I don't think she has to win. But if she finishes any lower than third, I think there's going to be significant pressure for her to drop out. And I would say if if she's a distant third, as she was in Iowa, you might see some of that some of that pressure. Don't count out a Biden comeback story in New Hampshire. And because, <laughs> frankly, because he did so poorly in Iowa, if he came in a close third and especially a second, I think he's able to claim victory and, and ride, say, say the momentum is now sort of at his back. Take that into Nevada where, where he can do well, potentially a top two finish, and then go into his firewall state of South Carolina. If he gets fourth or fifth again in New Hampshire, things get dicey. I'm not someone who thinks that South Carolina inevitably holds up for Biden, that that nothing can happen that sort of makes South Carolina difficult for him. And in fact, it's his strength in South Carolina that, that I think is going to put additional pressure on him to drop out before South Carolina unless he proves that he that, that, that he can be a real contender now that votes have taken place. My, my personal opinion is that Biden continues to be someone who would uh, be the strongest general election candidate for uh, Trump. I think Biden has a message for the moment. I thought, I'll, I'll be honest and say, I, I thought his closing in Iowa, the, the basic contours of the message were, were, were solid. And so we'll see how, how this develops. In the debate tonight, I already mentioned the question of whether Sanders takes significant uh, is sort of the center of it is going to be an interesting one. We, we, we've seen that Klobuchar is willing to take on Bernie. Uh, Biden has been willing to take on Bernie and Buttigieg, especially after Iowa, with pretty strong critiques that we haven't seen so far. Basically saying that Bernie would saddle the Democratic ticket with the label of of socialist uh, and that Buttigieg is is unprepared and not ready for the job and unproven. And so the the interesting thing, I think, in this debate is Elizabeth Warren. She's shown a willingness to be with line up with Biden and Klobuchar on confronting Buttigieg. The question is, does she does she take a more aggressive posture towards Bernie. I think that's the real wild card in this debate. Uh, the the other thing to watch out for is Biden just has a really fine line to walk tonight. People want to see fight. They're going to want to see him make a strong case. But there is there is a fine line between sort of showing fight and frantically grasping out of, you know, desperation or anger or embattlement. And I would not be surprised to see some of Biden's opponents try and bait him tonight 
into making a mistake. I also wouldn't be surprised to see, as I alluded to before, some of his opponents tonight really go after him. Even though he came in fourth in Iowa, I think some of them might smell blood in the water. And the question is going to be whether Biden can overcome that, whether Biden can come out of this debate. And, you know, I think more importantly, out of the results in New Hampshire with some sense of momentum or whether there's going to be a narrative building that by staying in the race, Biden is embarrassing himself or souring his legacy. And don't be surprised to see some of his opponents plant some of those seeds. Don't be surprised to see Buttigieg give a sort of patronizing, you know, we're so grateful for the service that Joe Biden has provided to this country and this party that sounds like a compliment, but is really meant to be an obituary. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting debate tonight. All right. So we're looking forward to continuing to uh, I, I think we're going to do another episode of Faith 2020 next week. And, you know, as long as we're in this season where there are primaries or, or caucuses every week or so, we're going to keep this podcast on a weekly basis. I think it's time to move to a weekly podcast uh, as opposed to bi-weekly. This is certainly the time for it. All right. So that's all the setup you're going to get. When we get back, we're going to talk to Tim Alberta. It's a really wonderful conversation. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. And Again, our guest for this episode is Tim Alberta. Tim is uh, the chief political correspondent for Politico. Uh, his longer form work is often published in Politico's magazine. And Tim is uh, the author of American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump, debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, He lives in Michigan. He recently moved back to Michigan with his wife and three sons and their German shepherd. Uh, He writes about that move a little bit in a new regular Letter to Washington series, a 2020 uh, series of articles that highlight stories, trends, and people from outside the political bubble for those in the political bubbles. And I hate to tell you, but if you're listening to this uh, podcast, that that means you're that means you're in it. And so we 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 try and always make sure that that you're hearing from outside of sort of conventional wisdom that you're hearing from voters who aren't uh, and ideas that aren't always part of the conversation in mainstream journalism. And that's what Tim's doing with this series. So here it is. Here's our conversation. Just had it this morning with Tim Alberta. Well, Tim, it's so great to have you on. Welcome, uh, welcome to Faith 2020. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, there is so much that we could uh, discuss, and uh, so much that we will discuss on this episode. I, I want to uh, jump in talking about the Republican side of things. Of course, Republicans had their first primary votes. Uh, it wasn't too contentious uh, of a race. Uh, Donald Trump swamped Walsh and Bill Weld in Iowa. Joe 
Walsh expressing some disappointment that uh, his party wasn't his anymore. But the most contentious you know, side of things on the Republican side wasn't in the primary in, in, in Iowa. But of course, with with the vote, and we actually had Senator Mitt Romney vote to remove the president from office. Uh, did you see that coming? And based on your reporting, both your book and and the reporting you've done for Politico, writing about sort of the, the culture and environment that Trump has created in the Republican Party. Did you think Romney would make the vote he did? Did you think other Republican senators might jump in? Did anything surprise you about how this week played out? Well, you know, yes and no. I think Romney was always going to be the likeliest of any of these Republican senators to cross the president in the way that he did. And obviously, part of the reason why Romney is a lone voice at this point in the party, you know, Trump has, in so many ways, taken over the Republican Party and and sort of turned it into his own machine. And, and he has done so through fear and through intimidation. But he's also, I think, been successful in purging dissenters from the party, which is important to realize. You know, if, if, if Jeff Flake were still in the Senate, then he would have voted with Romney. If Bob Corker were still in the Senate, I think it's, you know, pretty likely that he might have voted to ultimately Vic, the president, uh, you know, on on the House side, if Mark Sanford or if Justin Amash, even a couple of others uh, who have left Congress, if they were still in the House GOP, I think there's a pretty decent chance it wouldn't have been a party line vote to impeach in the first place. So, you know, Romney is in many ways sort of the last man standing because any number of the Republican dissenters uh, who had made life difficult on Donald Trump in his first two years. They're no longer in Congress, and obviously John McCain would would be on that list as well. Who who uh, you know passed away in 2018. So there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are sort of working in the president's favor here. Obviously, he wanted a party line exercise in both the House and the Senate, and the big question mark really was always going to be Romney and. You know, it's so, I think, poetic in a certain sense that, you know, just as John McCain, who had been the standard bearer of the party in 2008, somebody who President Trump did not think highly of, who thought he was sort of weak and thought he was part of the problem, you know, he was he was one of these Republicans who was too accommodating to Democrats and who wasn't willing to fight, wasn't willing to sort of get down in the mud and scrap and claw and play dirty. Uh, that That is exactly the same way that Trump viewed Mitt Romney. And these are the two previous standard bearers of the party in 08 and 12, respectively. And so I think it's sort of poetic in a sense that, you know, John McCain was that lone voice of dissent in so many instances against President Trump, and obviously, you know, gave that dramatic thumbs down on the Senate floor to to uh, to defeat the effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And then, you know, once McCain departs the Senate, it's Mitt Romney who's that lone voice of dissent and sort of this this thorn in Trump's side. And if it were any other senator, I think Trump would be 
Um, I still think he'd be angry. He'd be, you know, he would lash out. But there's just something about Romney that just so irritates the president and just gets under his skin and sort of lives rent free inside of his head. And it was, I think, in many ways predictable that Romney would reach the decision that he reached because uh, because of the way he thinks about life, the way that he thinks about politics, the way that he views this president. But boy, it's still very surprising that in this Republican Party, understanding the consequences that exist for falling out of line and, and for bucking this incredibly popular president, this president who's incredibly popular, I should say, with his own base and with you know, the Republican Party, it's incredibly, it's incredibly courageous for Romney to do what he did, knowing that you know, he is going to be ostracized, that he's going to be marginalized within the party. But obviously, he felt that it was the right thing for him to do. I guess another level to that, I think you're right about about um, McCain and about uh, obviously about about Romney. It, you know, another piece of why Trump, I think, why there's that animosity and why he's able to build up that antagonism among his base is just this idea that Romney and McCain were unable to protect uh, his base like like he does, <laughs> you, you know, that, that, that Romney and McCain sort of failed to push back against these sort of sneering liberals who were out to, uh, who, who did not support his base's, you know, way of life, whether they were religious conservatives or gun owners. And I kind of want to tie this to uh, the recent series that you launched for Politico. So you Moved home to Michigan, and by the way, I want to congratulate you on on that. I think that's going to be uh, healthy for you. I, I hope that turns out to be like a great move for you and your family. But as as part of that, you you launched this series of of letters to Washington from the rest of America. Before we talk about sort of the the first letter that you wrote, that I just thought was a wonderful piece of journalism. Just just talk about why you decided to do this. What what sort of gap did you did you see um, uh, in the reporting on 2020 that, that you're trying to fill with this? Well, you know, I, I, I think there's a bit of a blind spot that we have in the media. Uh, and, and it's not that we, I think, you know, purposely ignore voters. I think it's just that we often feel like we have enough information, um, that we have all the information that we need about voters to sort of report on them. And, and, you know, we, because we have some polling and we'll do, you know, some occasional man on the street interviews and we talk to friends and family and we get on Twitter. And so we feel like we have a pretty good idea of like what people are thinking about. And I think maybe very broadly speaking, that's, that's true, but there's just no substitute for having, you know, extended in-depth conversations with people who have very particular life experiences and trying to understand what their motivations are uh, for behaving in a certain way, for voting in a certain way. Uh, you know, people are really complicated and they tend to defy some of the stereotypes that we impose on them in, in political journalism. And so, after 2016, there was an awful lot of hand wringing in, you know, elite media circles where people were, you know, saying, "How did we get this wrong? What, what, what did we, what did we not do? 
uh, how did we not see this coming? There was such a feeling of being blindsided, I suppose, when when Donald Trump won, I think, first the nomination, but then really even more so the presidency. And there were, I think, a lot of very earnest conversations being had, a lot of very sincere introspection among journalists saying, well, you know, what do we do the next time around? How can we sort of try to reconnect with parts of America that clearly we have lost touch with? And I'm not saying that I'm any more in touch with with those parts than anybody else. It's not my goal here to sort of get on a, a soapbox. I think it's just what I have seen in the last couple of years is ultimately not really much of a course correction. It just doesn't seem to me that that reporters and, and publications are approaching this election in ways that are fundamentally different than they approached the last election. And I think the biggest, uh, I think the biggest part of that equation is we're still not really paying very close attention to voters. And we're, and, and specifically, you know, why is it that at this point, you know, you could, you, you're very well looking at a scenario where you could have, the two major party nominees this fall be two people who never belonged to those parties in their lives. Bernie Sanders never belonged to the Democratic Party. Donald Trump never belonged to the Republican Party. And you have this incredible disruption in politics and this deinstitutionalization of, of politics. And I don't think that we're really necessarily that much closer to understanding why today than we were four years ago. And so I think just getting out and having a lot of very in-depth, unhurried conversations with voters and just sharing them in sort of their raw, unfiltered form is its own form of sort of public service journalism that we just haven't been doing very much of. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Uh, John Ward, who, who you probably know, is a, a friend of the show, and he's been looking at some of these some of these same themes as far as the sort of deinstitutionalization of our politics. And, and I, I think it's one of the one of the big stories when we think about Trump and when we think about, uh, like you said, uh, you know, what's what's happening on the Democratic side. I, I want to talk about the, the first the first story, which is uh, you went to Birch Run, Michigan, uh, to the Mid-Michigan Gun and Knife Show. And, and, and I appreciated the context you set out, which which was to point out that uh, while today I think you found that that this was a overwhelmingly re- Republican or at least pro-Trump uh, environment. It wouldn't have always been the case, <laughs> and I think oftentimes uh, we could look at the the uh, sort of po- political seed and think that like the the voters that. Uh, Democrats don't have now or that Republicans do have are the voters that they would always have and could never get back. Uh, and, and that's, that's just, things change all the time. But right now it's, it's a situation where uh, you found a lot of, uh, pro-Trump voters of, of, of different varieties. I have a specific question about the nature of their support, but before I go there, would love for you to just, Kind of, what were your top line reactions about what what you found at, at this event in, in Bertrand? Sure, I, I think the point you're making is is really important. You know, we we have lived through and are continuing to live through a really accelerated realignment of our political system, and I think that's due in 
no small part to sort of a cultural realignment. These things go hand in hand. And, you know, guns have long been such a, a, a proxy for both our culture and our politics. And when you consider the fact that, you know, I'm talking with a lot of these people at, at this gun show and it's occurring to me and some of them are talking to me after I've been there for five, six, seven hours about how there's no Democrats at these shows and and how there used to be and how there, there never used to be, you know, this political apparel everywhere. You know, I should step back and say I walked into this show and Michael and it was just so jarring to see just Trump and and MAGA apparel everywhere. I mean, it was like it was I, I think I wrote somewhere in the piece like you you could have you you could have mistaken it for a Trump show where people happen to be selling guns. It was it, it was just incredible to me. And, you know. When you talk to people there, even some of the real diehard Trump supporters I spoke with, they sort of weren't as comfortable with it as you might might imagine. I mean, they not even comfortable. I guess they they were sort of surprised by it too, and they're sort of looking around, saying, "You know, it didn't used to be this way. Like this is this is like this is a little weird. Like this is almost a little over the top." But then in the next breath, they'd say, "But you know, like that's what happens when like this other party decides that." you know, decides that we're not worth paying attention to or that we're deplorables or whatever it might be. Right. And so there, I think that's one big takeaway, right. Is, is you talk to a lot of the folks in an environment like this and they still go back to deplorables. I mean, heck, some of them still go back to clinging to guns and religion from the Obama campaign in 08. I mean, there is a real sense that they are looked down upon, that they are condescended to, that they are, sort of culturally speaking, second class citizens that, that, and, and, you know, whether that's exaggerated or inflated, I mean, it clearly exists in their minds and it's such an important, uh, such an essential political motivator. You know, you can't, you can't try to win somebody's vote if that person thinks that you sort of view them as, as, as beneath contempt, right? It, it just doesn't it doesn't work. And so, there are some Democrats who have spoken to that a little bit, but you've got to think that at a, at a certain level, for whoever wins this Democratic nomination, it would go an awfully long way if they gave some sort of big, sweeping thematic speech where they just sort of tried to reset this entire narrative and say, look. And to everybody, to every conservative out there in middle America, you know, I don't think you're a deplorable. I understand that you might have had reasons for voting for Donald Trump that some of us will never understand. But I also want you to know that, you know, I want you to be a part of, of my America, right? And, 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 and I'm going to do everything I can to earn your trust and earn your vote. Like, I just... Maybe I'm romanticizing it, but it just feels like that would go such a long way because time after time after time, traveling the country the last four years, you hear this from so many voters. And when the, the, the really interesting thing is you put up a story like, like the one that I put up on social media and you see a lot of people on the left just sort of cr- you know crying foul and rolling their eyes and saying that these people are so full of it. And like, listen, you might disagree with their reasoning. You might, you might think that they are – you might think that they are beneath contempt. You might think that they are a racist or, or a homophobe or, or 
backward in their thinking, that's fine. But ultimately, politics is a coalition business, and you you don't you don't win elections in the long term by being exclusive, right? You build a coalition, you don't build a club. And the idea that that Democrats, that some Democrats think it's you know wise to sort of shut the door on nearly half the country, um, you know, 63 million people who voted for Trump. And, you know, obviously we're painting in broad brushes here. I think most smart Democrats realize that you can't shut the door on half these people, but there are some loud voices now on the left who view this as just a pure base mobilization exercise. And that's a really dangerous way to head into an election, especially knowing how, how galvanized the president's base is behind him. Yeah, yeah, there, there are. We we talk about this quite a lot uh, on this on this show, and so uh, your uh, what you're saying will not be unfamiliar to our our listeners. And I actually want to dig in here a bit. One of my favorite insights of your piece, which is something that that Democrats often just just don't get, which is, you know, Democrats tend to view politics as about. P- policy and uh, especially in DC, there's sort of a technocratic, uh, you know, uh, to be more positive about it, like a like a substantive, you, you know, a policy approach where they think that you know what sticks the most politically, what really matters is what you pass or don't pass uh, legislatively, uh, what, what you are able to accomplish or are not able to accomplish substantively if you if you have the executive branch. Uh, and almost the symbolic and cultural stuff is, is what you do uh, to mollify uh, your own base if you couldn't get done the policy stuff you wanted to get done. What your reporting kind of shows is that for a lot of these uh, these voters that are a part of the Republican coalition currently, it's very different. Like you didn't go to this. Uh, you, you mentioned in the piece that there's actually, you actually found a surprising level of support and even embarrassment regarding Republican opposition to like basic gun control measures. Uh, 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 you, you you didn't go in and see signs about you know repeal the ACA or uh, you know uh, stay out of the Paris you know climate deal. <laughs> what, what you found were these cultural touch points, and it resonates with what I found too. I was able to have a conversation with a, with a Democratic activist here, uh, a friend, someone I've worked with, and we were having a, a conversation after the 2016 election, and this person was relating to me a series of conversations that she had with with evangelical voters she said you know i, I was surprised michael you you wouldn't believe that these voters it it wasn't don't ask don't tell that bothered them it wasn't obergefell that that necessarily was at the core of their concern uh what it was, and she's like, Michael, you wouldn't believe this, but let, like, let me t- <laughs> sort of like uh, wait till you hear what was the first thing that they said. And b- before she could open her mouth, I said it was when the White House was lit up like a rainbow. Um, that it wasn't it wasn't the policy move. It was th- that signal of of sort of cultural domination. That sort of signal that 
uh, you don't belong in your own country anymore. Now, of course, progressives listening to this, Tim, would say, well, that's what Republicans have sent to LGBT people and and immigrants and and, uh, broad swaths of the country. That's like their whole strategy. But but, but I I do want to sort of uh, affirm what you're what you're saying and about sort of what you found at the at the show and then just ask you about sort of why you think these cultural moments sort of resonate so much I, I think your suggestion of Democrats sort of tackling this head-on makes makes a ton of sense but just just tell me a, a bit more th- through your reporting of, of how this has come up for you you know it, I think we we tend to all uh, view politics in some way as an abstract exercise in sort of intellectualism or, or, or at the very least, um, you know, th- there was a, there was a, a prevailing sense for so long that it meant something to be, it meant something substantive to be a liberal or to be a conservative, right? That, that this was about the size of government, it was about the role of government in your in your life. Um, it was about you know the relationship fundamentally between the state and the citizen, and there were real, I think, sort of hefty intellectual debates to be had within those sort of boundaries. But what we've figured out in the last you know twenty years or so, I think even especially in the last 10 years is that for so many voters um they're actually a not all that interested in those in those policy disputes um i think in in certain cases they are but by and large uh as we've seen with everything from you know healthcare to taxes to debt and deficit they're like ultimately it's it's a lot more tribal than it is ideological that, that basically when their party's in charge, they'll sort of go along and say, yeah, that's a great idea. And if the other parties, then they'll cry foul. Um, so voters are, I think, you know, broadly speaking, a lot less ideological than we assumed. And the, 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 what dovetails with that, the reason why they're actually a lot less ideological than we ever assumed is that they tend to be far more motivated by those sort of cultural flashpoints that that you were referencing. I'll take it a step further here. You know, part of the reason I believe that Trump has been politically successful is because he connects with people on an emotional level. I, I said the other day that I believe that Trump's real vulnerability in politics is substance and and reason. But the reason, but, you know, substance and reason are the two things that, that I think are sort of his political kryptonite, but Democrats and, you know, previously his Republican opponents, they were unable to take advantage of it because they tend to play more to sort of his emotion and Trump is a master of sort of manipulating emotions. And the reason I say all of that is because voters by and large and there's there's a fair bit of uh, research and and sort of academic insight to back this up but an awful lot of voters when they ultimately step inside the ballot box and they have a decision to make 
they're making that decision based on a lot of emotion. And oftentimes it's more based on emotion than it is on reason. Um, people will say, well, what about economic self-interest? Well, economic self-interest is a very pliable thing. And, and actually it to be a pretty emotional decision as well. Right? So at the end of the day, you know, if, if, if voters are going to make a decision based on something that is sort of gut rather than brain, heart rather than head, it's worth understanding for elected officials and for journalists and for anybody who wants to sort of understand where we are in this country, you know, who is doing a better job of playing to those gut instincts? Who is doing a better job of of appealing to those raw base emotions? And I think the answer for the last four or five years has been, you know, Trump. He 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 understands in a way that very few other politicians have understood how to press those buttons in a way that makes people support him, even while simultaneously thinking this guy is crazy or this guy is immoral or this guy boy i wish he would stop tweeting he's kind of he's kind of driving me nuts i mean it's the the dissonance that some of his voters will put on display some of them will just straight up say like i i think this guy is like is fit for a straitjacket but uh, but he's but he's there's nothing he could do to lose my support right and that's a remarkable thing yeah, remarkable uh, uh, two clauses to put together. A couple of flags for our listeners. First, I don't want folks to hear that it's Trump voters that vote emotionally. And, and that's not what you're saying, Tim. And it's really important. There's been a lot of important academic research in the last decade that has shown that some, including uh, Patrick Miller out of Duke and I think 2011 or 2010 had a study that that showed that it's actually high information uh high political engagement voters who engage more emotionally than those who uh those who are less engaged and less uh less informed uh, sort of less uh read uh the newspaper less and so that's just really important to understand that sort of emotionally driven politics isn't just the province of folks who don't have the time or interest in, you know, actually, you know, uh, uh, reading uh, 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 news reports and sort of uh, uh, studying policy. It's actually often those who study the policy, <laughs> those who are the most engaged, um, who are driven by emotion. So that that would uh, that would be the first thing. And then the second thing is just in the last episode, we talked about uh, uh, some of Elizabeth Warren's commitments to, for instance, wear uh, clothing at the uh, at her inauguration swearing-in ceremony to uh, to, to lift up um, and to celebrate Roe v. Wade. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it's actually, you know, one of these things that could cut both, both, both ways. D- does a promise like that, uh, that doesn't get you any sort of policy progress, uh, is it, is it a, a cultural symbol that, uh, motivates Trump's base in a way that uh, empowers him to win, or um, is is a move like this from Warren? And this isn't the only one. She's sort of increasingly been uh, engaging in a more cultural and symbolic politics over the last month. Uh, is is that is that what Democrats need to fire up their base even more than policy proposals? Um, 
Tim, just uh, real quick, and I know we got to, um, you know, land the plane. Just want to, I want to ask you about New Hampshire quickly, but but don't want to say all that without giving you a chance to respond. Yeah, no, you, you, I think you put your finger on it with the symbolism being so central to our politics now and, and just as central to Democratic politics as they've been to Republican politics in years past. Uh, I think Warren, I think Sanders to some extent. Um, they, and, and Buttigieg, obviously, I, you know, they, I think they're very smart to sort of have their, their finger on that pulse and to recognize that the policy promises that you're making and the proposals you're putting forth, they, they can only go so far to demonstrate a commitment to fighting for the people and for the beliefs that, you know, are going to, you can't demonstrate a, solidarity with and a commitment to people just by saying you're going to do something for them, right? You have to show them something and you, and that's, that can often be very difficult for a politician to do. Um, you know, the, the trick is in our very polarized landscape today, you know, how do you signal that? How do you symbolize that commitment to, one person without alienating two others. And obviously Trump doesn't care when he does it. Right. And because, because Trump, Trump understands, you know, we talked earlier about sort of persuasion versus mobilization. Trump is very openly a mobilization guy. And he understands that his only path to reelection, it looks just like his path to election in the first place. It is very narrow and it only works if he keeps his base completely fired up, completely behind him. He cannot afford to lose a single one of those supporters. Um, And I think some of these Democrats who you'll talk with, not just the candidates, but their campaign officials and consultants and strategists and pollsters, the people who are paid to, to really study this stuff, some of them are sort of convincing themselves that it's, it's going to be the same thing on their side, that there are so few true persuadables left that they, that, you know, it's just mobilization for them as well. And so they're going to sort of lean more into some of those same symbolic exercises and, you know, whether, whether they can do it without, you know, alienating some of the people who are left in the middle, still undecided, some of those suburban soccer moms that we saw flip in 18, uh, you know, that's, I think a huge question hanging over over 2020 and 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 something that we're going to have to pay very close attention to as it unfolds over the next 9 months. Yeah, Tim, a- absolutely. The 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 last question sort of where I'll land is uh we spoke earlier about uh deinstitutionalization, the weakening of parties. Uh, obviously this week uh we saw uh, a symbol, speaking of symbol, a symbol of that with the Iowa caucus, the results were uh, I think significant. We saw Biden's support sort of collapse out from from underneath him in a way that, uh, you know, for his campaign, hopefully isn't isn't foreshadowing, obviously, South Carolina, but, you know, coming up next week, New Hampshire, and Bernie and Buttigieg, neck and neck, Buttigieg had a really rough 
December and even much of January, but seemed to catch his momentum back just when he needed it. Real sort of quickly, what should our listeners be looking for tonight at the debate, which you moderated one of the recent Democratic debates, and so you have sort of special insight there, and then leading leading into New Hampshire. What, what are you know the two or three you know factors that you think are going to be important in, in how this plays out over the next week or so? Sure. So I think the big story here is Joe Biden, obviously, he it looks like and, and Iowa was such a mess that we'll never really know for sure. You know, what happened? <laughs> Lucky but, for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, right. I, I think that there's a, a positive for Biden to be taken out of the fact that, you know, he, he performed very poorly in Iowa, but it's such a disaster there on the ground that that it sort of muddles that result for a lot of people. But look, that's not going to change the narrative in the political class as we report this thing, which is that he's really limping along right now. And this is a guy who has sort of banked on a strategy of staying above the fray, letting letting everybody else knock themselves out, and he's just going to coast along at that twenty to twenty five percent. And he'll, as some as other people drop out, he'll you know grab some of their support and build up to. Build up to thirty-five and forty percent, and he'll eventually win the nomination by sort of a um, process of elimination, more or less. Uh, that's not going to work anymore. I, I think it's clear that Biden, and you've seen it this week, the former vice president has begun to engage his opponents much more aggressively, and he's going to have to do that. I think on the debate stage in New Hampshire, because look, if if you have a Bernie Buttigieg finish one-two in New Hampshire the same that you had in Iowa, and with Biden in a distant fourth. Um, the, the idea that he can just coast through Iowa and New Hampshire, not do well, go into Nevada, not do terribly well there. And then clean and then up in South Carolina, yeah. On in South Carolina, we, there's just no precedent for that. We've never seen that happen before because this is – at this stage – when the voting actually begins, this thing is all about momentum. And so it's very difficult to generate momentum from scratch. So I think, you know, Joe Biden is in a very, very precarious position right now, and he does not have the luxury of time. So all eyes are going to be on him over the next yeah week, week and a half, because if he doesn't regain his footing a little bit, then suddenly he's going to be an endangered species heading into Nevada and South Carolina, not just because of, of performing poorly, but because of what it means to perform poorly. People have to understand that the momentum thing is not just intuitive and it's not just a narrative. It It's all about right. money. If, if, if you're running a campaign and you can't finish higher than fourth in these first two early states that are so critical, your fundraising dries up overnight. And Joe Biden isn't running a pirate ship campaign. He's got an air yeah, carrier right. and he's got a lot of overhead. He's got a lot of staff. He He's really low on money right now. And, and he needs to write, he, he needs to write things in a hurry if he's going to bring in the kind of money that's necessary to sustain this campaign over the long haul. Really good insight. Uh, I think the the feeling might be, uh, as folks look to the debate tonight, that Joe Biden won't take a lot of incoming because he came in fourth, that the focus will be elsewhere. 
I would not be surprised to see Biden take incoming from like he's still the former vice president. He's still a danger. I I don't think his opponents want him in this race come South Carolina. If they could put some doubt in his donors' minds and begin to put some pressure on Biden that he needs to drop out if he doesn't do well in New Hampshire, um, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if if there was uh, uh, if there was more pressure on Biden tonight to sort of send the message that his 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 legacy would be soured if he stayed in this race longer than uh, he should. And so I, I agree with you. I think New Hampshire he needs to be able to show some some momentum or else. Uh, it, it it would be a very long uh, uh, two and a half weeks or so until South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. And and we saw the same thing with Jeb Bush back in 2016 uh, to a lesser extent because he was pouring. He was he was polling, I should say, much uh, much worse at this stage in the race. But uh, you can see some of those parallels because it, it became clear after Iowa, New Hampshire, that Bush was sort of past the stage of recovery. I'm not certain that Biden will be there. I'm not saying that he'll be there, but that is the fear that's beginning to creep into the minds of some of his supporters at this, at this stage. All right, Tim. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, for this conversation, and thank you for the reporting you do. Uh, we've been uh, able to follow you, uh, not just over the course of this presidential, but be able to follow your reporting for for quite a long time. You're one of the uh, one of the journalists we we trust to help uh, see things clearly, uh, and so we appreciate you. Hope to remain in conversation with you, and uh, we'll we'll continue talking about your work on this show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Tim. Well, really enjoyed that conversation with Tim. And uh, th- that's all we have for this episode. We're going to continue, like I said, to think do more regular episodes now that we're into voting, trying to keep you up to speed. Again, always trying to bring you some of the best, most insightful voices, journalists, those who are involved in this race. But I'm excited we made it to this point. We'll see how New Hampshire goes. I, I, I do think in a post, uh, post-New post Hampshire, we're going to have a lot more clarity about where uh, the Democratic race uh, stands. I, I think what we won't be clear on is how, how Trump's race is going to develop and what the general election environment is going to be. And so as Democratic primary voters are making these decisions about who they want to be on their ticket, I think there is increasing uncertainty about sort of the state of play related to related to this president. That's going to contribute to an additional sense of uh, anxiety and I think fluctuation of a certain fluidity to the Democratic race as they look over on the Republican side and see an incumbent who's raising money, who doesn't have a significant primary challenger, and is, you know, as we discussed with his State of the Union, has a game plan of his own that he's executing on and that his team's executing on. We're going to track it all. Hey, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Weir. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.